Hello, dear friends. We are back for the final episode of season three of Owning Your Legacy. If you are new to the show, I welcome you to explore earlier episodes. Across the board this season, we've had insightful conversations with incredible individuals. I love how authentically my guests show up and share their stories. There is not a conversation where I have not left feeling inspired or having learned something new. And today's episode, of course, is no exception. Joining me is Renee Flesh, a longtime friend and 25-year food industry vet. Renee and I met through a mutual friend a few years ago and have been big supporters of one another ever since. Currently, Renee is the head of corporate strategy at Ingredion and a force when it comes to flavor, strategic operations, and business growth. She is leading Ingredion toward continued success by focusing on people and their strengths, as well as consistently pushing for new opportunities to connect on a deeper level. Prior to joining Ingredion, Renee had her own consulting business, where she's taken on a number of unique projects with big players in the industry. Also joining us is Lauren Hopkins, Edlong's Business Development Director for the U.S. and Canada. Lauren skillfully mixes the art and science of sales, applying a collaborative, people-first approach, along with her technical expertise. Our conversation centers on collaboration in the food industry, and particularly how collaboration, even between competitors, is what will progress us forward faster. This topic is so important to me, to Edlong, and to our customers. A big part of why I'm here doing this podcast is to kick down doors and bring leaders of the food industry together, to have these vital conversations, and ultimately to create the impact far bigger than ourselves. I want to ask not just what is your legacy, but what is the legacy our generation of food industry leaders will leave behind? This conversation is just the start of that. I hope you enjoy it, and stay tuned for Season 4, coming soon. Hi, you guys. Hi. Welcome to our podcast, Owning Your Legacy, and I'm so glad to have you both here. And thank you for coming all the way out and joining us in this beautiful spot. Thank you for having me, really. It's a pleasure. So before we dive into our conversation, I would love you to, Renee, start and tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. Hi, I'm Renee Fless, and I'm currently the head of strategy at Ingredion, global food ingredient company. Uh, and I've just started after being a career consultant in the food industry for 30 plus years. Nice. So I am the child of Dutch immigrants. Nice. Um, and they immigrated here with six kids, four kids. I was born later. So I grew up in really a, uh, you know, an immigrant household. And that really shaped a lot of who I am. Um, I and learned something new on these all the time. Yeah. I did not know that. Very yeah, cool. yeah. And so I uh, grew up in New Jersey. And, you know, I, I won't boil the ocean here and tell you my whole life story. But I think it just created, you know, growing up in that situation makes you look at your environment and your community very different from if you're, I think, originally from a place, even though I'm American, it just created a different perspective. So that has really informed a lot of, of who I am moving forward. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I got to college, I, I, I uh, majored in food science, which really speaks to the rest of who I am working in the food industry today. Mm-hmm. Um, but the youngest of six kids, Think Birth Order also yes. had a, a big play. The youngest of seven. There you go. Food scientist. Yeah. 
So I think, um, and and with much older siblings that really, especially my sister, helped, I think, raise me. Right. So um, What was the age span? 15 years. Yeah. So people thought I was hers, wow, you know, when yeah. she would take me out in the carriage. So that just created a nice bond. And um, Ours was 12. That oh, is big. You know, I yeah. remember my sister leaving for college and I was six. So oh. you don't really live together very long as siblings. Exactly, exactly. That's right. And um, I've been I've been married for thirty years. Congratulations! Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> for a wonderful husband, and uh, I have three children. And you know, my career has been. Uh, I've never really paused. I haven't paused, but I've zigged and zagged. Let's right. say. Okay. Um, started off always super ambitious. Uh, consulting firm right out of college, worked crazy hours, traveled internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, kids came, and I didn't want to give it up, but I couldn't really delegate their their growing up anymore. Like I could delegate the diapers, and I could delegate all that. And then mm-hmm. when my twins went to first grade, my son had some learning issues, and I couldn't really. I needed to attend to that the same way I attended to my own work. So Mm -hmm. I started uh, my own firm, not really a firm, but a practice, consulting practice, and worked with a lot of other consultants who had left my firm at the same time and just kind of fit everything in and was able to do what I wanted to do, you know, good enough, put it that way. You know, there's Mm -hmm. always something that has to give a little bit. Knowing that, you know, they would grow up and I'd want to go back to being a full, you know, having a different kind of a career uh, situation. And I didn't want to put anything on hold or detract from that. So it was, Mm -hmm. you know, and I am in strategy. So (laughs) I I don't want to say it was all planned out, but there was definitely, you know, life is long and we should remember that. And there's a lot of time for things to play out as Mm -hmm. as time goes on and not feel like we have to get it all in at once. Right. And now where are you? So I'm doing things a little backwards. So I, you know, I went from consulting. I just joined in greeting on as a full-time employee. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, you know, at this stage in, in careers, people start to think about changing it up and doing things on their own and, and consulting on their own. And I'm doing exactly the opposite. And I couldn't be happier about it. That's great. It's, uh, you know, I've got the time and the bandwidth to do everything that I want to do. And uh, I'm in Chicago near now half time, and uh, you know, the family loves it. It's everybody's on board. Nobody's feeling left out. And um, you know, sounds like a little bit of freedom. You know, a little. It is. It is. And Lauren and I don't get that because we. (laughs) She particularly as young, very young, minor. I'm getting there. The light is at the end of the tunnel for me. (laughs) Yes, couple more years. Almost four year old son at home. Oh, Mm -hmm. I remember those days. They're fabulous. Mm -hmm. It's all good. It's yes. all good. It is good. And so I'm, you know, I feel like I've just, I know I made the right decision. I, I know it. And that's a great feeling. You know, I just, I think I just passed my 60-day mark and I know I made the right decision and that feels really good. That's huge. Good yeah. culture feels like a culture Really, fit. really good. And yeah. exciting things going to happen, you know, sort of percolating and great company. We agree. Yes. We're excited to work with you guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Lauren, tell us a little bit of your story. So um, Lauren Hopkins, I am currently the business development director for US and Canada at Ed Long. Almost two years um, in December. I have over 10 years of experience in the food and beverage industry. Like yourselves, technical degree out of school, never really envisioned myself 
and, you know, moving through kind of the technical landscape in the food industry and now um, in sales. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great combination, right? Mm-hmm. Um, helps us understand, understand both sides totally. of the business. I love that. Um, so excited to see, you know, where, excuse me, where that takes me. Um, but yes, yeah, so I have a little son, Harrison, at home, and my husband and I just celebrated nine years of marriage. Awesome. So a lot of a lot of good things going on. What was your anniversary? Yeah. Um, end of September, so the 21st. That's my anniversary. Holy moly. No. Love it. Yes. Wait. <laughs> yeah. What are the chances? We were destined to be here that together. I, I'm a believer in signs, the good witch in me kind of thing, so that's a really that's good awesome. sign. That's that. fantastic. Yeah. How was the day? Mine was sunny and bright. And it was, um, I was actually in San Francisco, oh, and then when right. I made it home, it was actually my mother's 60th birthday that weekend. Her birthday's the 23rd, so oh. we, we kind of squeezed in our anniversary celebrations, that's but great. it was a beautiful weekend. That's so. great. Mm-hmm. That sounds lovely. <laughs> It was. So today we're going to talk about collaboration and innovation and what's going on in our food industry, which we love our industry. It's like the best place to be. I'd love you guys to talk about competition, you know, and how competition is looked at these days in terms of uh, startups and plant-based and and just, you know, what do you feel like the landscape looks like? So... Um, you know, this is near and dear to my heart, obviously, because being in strategy, it's all about being different from your competition. And the arc for what that means has certainly changed, I think, during the course of my career. And um, it's still about trying to be different enough so that everyone has their own space. But it's become, and I, at, at no point do I mean it to sound like there's collusion or anything like that. Right. But I think there's an acknowledgement that there has to be, on to some extent, you know, for your near-in competitors, that's one thing. You kind of leave them alone. Mm-hmm. But you can have very positive relationships with circles further out. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost like a consortium is what I picture. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a little... Ecosystem maybe? I don't Ecosystem's I'm, a great word. I love that I word. I love that word. Okay, let's go with that. Yeah, let's go with <laughs> ecosystem. I think that there's been a recognition um, recently, and it depends what industry you're in, obviously, mm-hmm. um, with the bigger companies, not so much, but I think of self, you know, cultivated meat, which just to... I think we all know what that is, but um, you know that is one industry that will not progress without cooperation amongst competitors, direct competitors. So Some describe have, that a little more for our listeners because they might not know that. So cultivated meat is this um, pr- product area where you actually harvest cells from animals, and you many of them are what we call immortal, so that the way you I'm not a cell biologist, so I'm not going to say any of this right, but it's not like you have to keep going back to the animal and harvesting cells. You have a cell bank, and they they regenerate, and you can keep using them. So the animal doesn't die. There's really no hurtful. It's almost like cheek, you know. Yeah, it's it's actually like a biopsy. It's like a, I think it's a needle, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't, oops. And I don't eat meat, so... I, so I, I think it's a much better way to, mm-hmm. to have meat. And so you, you grow cells in, a, in the simplest form. You grow cells you know, in, a, in a Petri dish. In this case, it'll be in big bioreactors that get harvested. And 
I'm simplifying the process because you can't just get from those cells to a steak very easily. There's a lot of steps in between, but ultimately that's what will happen. And we're probably five to 10 years out from having a real viable product. And there's going to be hybrid products along the way. We'll probably see cell meat mixed with plant-based proteins and other ingredients to have sort of these combinations before we and get extended. to- extended. Yeah, before, because just think about the alternative meats we have now. There's not that much innovation that's happened. What will happen next probably is these cell ingredients for, you know, whether they're called suspensions or slurries, I don't think we know yet, but that will be added to as soon as the FDA gets the process down, which they will hopefully next year, 2023, they'll, they can add these cell slurries to. Um, alternative protein and plant protein products, and it will really change the flavor profile and some of the texture components at very small percentages. You don't need much. So that will be the beginning, and then it will move from there mm -hmm. to the the promise, the brand promise is a steak at the end of the day, right? But that's right. a good 10 years away. So there's a lot of, again, I'm simplifying the process. There's many, many, many steps from outside of the food science area that have to happen, mostly mm -hmm. microbiology and other things. And it's it's really one of those things where you can't be an expert in everything. Right. You don't have the you don't have the funding or the expertise to be able to to do this for every step. So there has to be cooperation amongst the industry to figure out what the best practices are and mm -hmm. how they can learn from each other. And it's happening. There are outliers. I mean there's some companies that choose not to per to participate, but for the most part, there are, um, you know, when you go to the symposiums that are held several times a year, they're all very collaborative and it's just sort of in the DNA of these uh, industries because they know that it has to happen right. in order to be successful. So that was a lot of words to get there. Sorry. I think, no, that was good. <laughs> and I think that's where the magic happens, though, you know, that yeah. this collaboration gives that diversity of thought. Yes. And I am one of those people. I can't think and strategize and dream in a vacuum. I do better when I'm with other people and like bouncing ideas off of each other. Yeah, that's right. You guys should talk a little bit about what's coming up as far as like the the topic on plant based and thought leadership in our industry. And I think you guys are doing some cool stuff together in terms of really, you know, showing collaboration at its finest right there. So I think a big thing for, for us with flavor specifically is we, we own and understand our product very well. And oftentimes our customers come to us for broader advice and, and expertise. And we're, we're kind of, we're doing is leaning more on those complementary ingredient suppliers, like an ingredient where they own and understand your texturizers. And, you know, so one thing we were talking about earlier right. when we first um, met today was, um, understanding then how do you then use other ingredients in the process differently, um, knowing how the other ingredients function. So you and can react, change the outcome. And react yeah. together. Like That's, that's exactly always amazed right. me. The different starches is going to make the flavor profile totally different. That's exactly what we were talking about. And of course, Ingredion knows, because of the chemistry around that, what, what might direct a flavor approach that might not be top of mind from the flavor company perspective. Mm -hmm. So right. when you work together that way, then you really get the best of both worlds. And I think the customer is the one that benefits at the end totally. because you have a quicker turnaround for a new Speed product. Speed to market. I, one of my yes. favorite mm -hmm. is seeing customers come in, and we see this often. They've been struggling for months, many months, 12 yep. to 18 months sometimes, come in and in a day can solve a problem that 
that they couldn't get solved before. Exactly. It's and beautiful. Probably for lower cost overall as well, because Absolutely. you're you're not it's not as much of a cook and look versus a predict and not optimize kind of right. a situation, which is right. much better. And I think I mean all three of us being food scientists. Interestingly, at least when I went to school, which was a long time ago, so graduated in ninety two from Purdue. I beat you. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. 87 Rutgers. Oh, nice. (laughs) But did you learn anything about, I I mean, I loved what we learned, but we never learned anything about flavor. We definitely, you know, learned what chemicals were doing what in certain like, you know, biocarbonates and things like that. But we didn't really learn flavor. I feel like flavor is an apprenticeship. I think that's true. I didn't learn flavor until I went to Arthur G. Little, which was the consulting firm I joined after college and they were the pioneers of the flavor profile method. Ah. So they're, um, which is a sensory analytical tool and um, that, you know, I, it was incredible that sort of that, and that was an apprenticeship just right. going through the training and learning, but yes, flavor's the same way, right? Mm-hmm. As you guys know. Right. I mean, I grew up in a flavor yeah. company, so I knew about yeah, it, but yeah. There was um, there was really nothing at Purdue that really taught us that. So yeah, and I think even students don't know that you could become a flavorist, which is right. like, ooh, I mean, that's right. the holy grail. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> a lot of time and effort and um, training goes into being a flavorist. So people don't know that that's even a career path, right? When you're in college, no. and the art and science of it, it's, mm-hmm. it's very yeah. creative, very creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfumers too, I guess. Yeah, perfumers too. Yeah. So talk a little bit about boundaries. Yeah. In collaboration, I think that's. You know, where do you need them? What are healthy boundaries? What do you have to protect? What do you guys think about that? You know, ultimately protecting our customers' proprietary information, right? We have to treat that as if it's our own. Yes, um, and, good point. and instill that confidence in them um, that we will keep that to ourselves. But also with the knowing that if we can collaborate outside of our own products, then we can bring them that more holistic turnkey solution. Mm-hmm. So knowing when is the appropriate time to say, hey, we really should kind of broaden the scope here outside of just flavor at this point. Because often flavor is the last Absolutely. thing in product development. So then how do and we... And yet it can take the most time. Hmm. It can, mm-hmm. you know, 80% of the way there on a formula and then that last 20%, unless done collaboratively, right. it can take ridiculous amounts of time. It's such a strong component and so important. You know, 0. 0.1, 0.1% of a flavor, and then you do 0. 0.5, the profile is... Crazy different, totally different, and you don't. And it's it, that's why I was a horrible at the bench. I was <laughs> <Two> horrible. <extremes. laughs> I had no patience for that. <laughs> that scientific method where you got to go like point one, point one five. Right. I'm like, that's insane. I go point one to one percent. Yeah, <laughs> blow your mouth off. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very patient. You have to be really mm-hmm. and yeah. experience. I think experience helps that speed. But yeah. So from my perspective of. Working with, you know, I've been in so many situations where we've created, um, you know, working with clients that, and we're helping them create partnerships with other companies for whatever reason. It, it would seem, and it doesn't always work out this way, but when it works the best, it's when the boundaries are created mutually. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of that has to do with, you know, we mentioned servant leadership before. It has a yes. little bit to do with that because you want, to make sure that the high priority needs are being met on both sides in that case. And it's not in the old, I think I started by, 
before in the old in the old days, you know, at right. the beginning of the arc, it was very competitive, right? And right. you would never share. You had your own boundaries, and you didn't really care about anybody else's boundary. It was all about what the win was. You know, it was less win-win, more win-lose. Now oh, it's really, that's a good point. That's a very good really point. It's really become more win-win, yes. which mm-hmm. is part of that mutual boundary setting. And I think when you look at it that way, sometimes there is magic in that because mm-hmm. you find areas that you might not have explored had one party been more closed off or not had the comfort and the trust. Trust. I was, you know? That's what I was, as you were talking, yes. trust is huge. That's right. So so that has to, and, and that, and and being willing to explore those boundaries mutually, I think, creates trust in and of itself because mm-hmm. then it's a safe space and you can, both companies can have really open conversations about topics that aren't always um, treated, you know, whether it's IP areas or profit um, expectations or right. other things, you know, it those are comp- those are things that have to be discussed. To and I think know. there's more joy. You know, yeah. you work together and you come up with something that's not on the market collaboratively with different companies, and you see it on the shelf, and you know, like you were a part of that team. Mm-hmm. That's that's joy. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think you should dive in a little deeper on servant leadership okay. and. Because I think you have a unique definition of it, so I'd love to hear like how you define that compared to leadership. I thought that was interesting. Oh yeah, well I really see it as you know a servant lead. You're a, you're a servant leader, and there's I we talk about extremes, and it's always a little bit of a it's not always so black and white. But you know you're either a servant leader or you're servant first versus leader first, and it doesn't imply that servant leaders are not leaders. But it really is from the perspective of how can I support this person or company or whatever you're doing in a way that creates the best version of themselves yes. or that company. And it's not about me. In the end, the servant leader also wins, right? Because yes. once you give others the freedom and the confidence and the tools they need to be everything they can be, what a win that is, because that's what makes your organization really hum, is when you've got a team of people that you've now supported and helped do that. Route. And so it it's tricky, right? Because you have to know when to lead and you have to know when to follow. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is following and mm-hmm. and sitting back and watching. It takes and a listening. lot of- yeah, mm-hmm. listening. Yeah, listening. And truly seeing, I think, in order to be a good servant yes. leader, you have to really- see and observe and see them for their strengths and their weaknesses. And what do you think, Lauren, on that? It actually makes me think from even like a sales perspective, right? So like when you're going in to visit with a customer, you're networking, collaborating, when you're more human-centric, when you're thinking about the person and the problem versus the product, you have more empathy, right? And then you're delivering a solution that's bringing value um, and it's a win-win. So you have that mutual win too. So I, you know, Mm -hmm. from almost a sales perspective, if you bring servant leadership in, it's focusing on the person, not the product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, that's a great point. And getting to the solution. Yeah. 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 yeah there's nothing nothing worse than being sold to. <laughs> I, I think servant leadership in sales is sometimes saying, we can't help you with that. Maybe we know somebody that can. You know, that's... No, that's a, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. And I just read, it was, of all things, like a LinkedIn post, and it was a person talking about how they had interviewed a candidate and they said, this candidate was so not right for us, but they were really smart. And so I, I 
I sent him to somebody else that I knew needed that yeah. skill set. And the candidate, they they offered him a job and the candidate came back to the original guy and said, but I want to work for you. And he yeah. said, but you, I don't, we're not a fit. And he's like, but you were so caring about seeing what I really was important to me. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. You know, I don't know what eventually happened, but the point was, is that's it. It's all about right. seeing somebody for who they really are and mm-hmm. seeing what works. And putting the right person in the right seat. We talk yeah. about that a lot, that it could be the right person, but that isn't where their strengths lie. And they're just So talk about how you've dealt with that in the past. Have you had any experiences of, you know, having to move culture, move, you know, people around based on strengths or, you know. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to let you go on that one while I think. Uh, <laughs> hot seat. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, it's you know, kind of within your own sales team, you've got hunters and you've got farmers, right? Right. So sometimes you might have one of those doing the wrong activities and that's demotivating to them. Um, if I actually look back at my own sales career, I was once in a role where I was tasked with kind of maintaining an account that was just actually slowly declining. So the real reward there was slowing attrition, not growing, right? But as a person who thrives on growth and hunting, it was demotivating to me, right? This wasn't it my true skill set, right? Yeah. So in sales, you really have to make sure that these people's skills are complementary to what you want them to go and do because they might lose interest and not truly be doing what, you know, makes them satisfied at the end of the day and want to do more. So, yeah, that's and that, and that that can get tricky when you need all hunters and not farmers, for example, which mm-hmm. I think every company needs a little of both, but um, depends on the situation. I'd so agree. so then, yeah, I I think you know, it's interesting because in consulting you see so many different organizations and so many different skill sets. And at the end of the day, we can say we just kind of, you know, wrap up and, and give and our leave. Rec- and yeah, and leave. Yeah, and leave. Bye-bye. <laughs> so I'm not always quite sure how things work out, but there's always gaps and capabilities that are created by mismatches. And That's interesting perspective from a consulting perspective because mm. I'm sure you had opinions in, in the many companies that you worked with. Like, yes. Were you able to voice those opinions or... Yeah, yeah. Usually, with mm-hmm. usually, I'm sure with tact we, and grace. You know. Yes, because that's we. That was, I mean, at, at least the work that we did. That was what we had to be able to do. That we mm-hmm. we found value, and our clients found value in having those open conversations. Um, but the how to, what comes next, isn't always. You know, there's a big organizational behavior piece, which was not my focus. Mm-hmm. That can be tricky, and um, it's. It, it can be hard to really execute on on mm-hmm. on how to do that right. Yeah, that would be hard to be a consultant, get things started, and then yeah. you do have to walk away. It's always good, but then hard to know. Okay, did they yeah. carry it through? Well, and I I mean I have had to develop a lot of teams over my career, and you mm-hmm. you learn different perspectives and people's strengths and weaknesses. To your point, and sometimes um, when when the team is given the safe space and the allowance to discuss, there doesn't have to be a consensus. I, I'm, I'm not a, a consensus is great, but sometimes you have to move forward so you get as close as you can. And right. at least people are on board. They may not agree, but they're on board. Um, but sometimes 
there really isn't a fit. Sometimes people just have to make a change, mm-hmm. and that's there's no shame in that. Sometimes no. that's just the be- the better decision. And yeah, back to servant leadership, I think that's truly component of it. Yeah, I think, yeah, and right. And it's, it's, it is kinder, I think, to mm-hmm. allow someone to go find a position that fits better with their skill set where they can really grow rather than and be happy. them stuck. Right. Yeah. Or kind of guide them. Right. There, right? Yes. Kind of, does it exactly. kind of go along with like they're saying now, like quiet quitting where people are slowly losing motivation and they're doing this the bare minimum. Well, that doesn't benefit them or the organization. Exactly. So how do that we kind of That sounds horrible to me. That? I have heard that yeah. saying and I'm like, ick. Right. It's just ick. <laughs> it's not good for anybody. I know. Mm. I know. No. It's so kind of going back to innovation, you had mentioned a study that you yes. were a part of. So let's chat about that a little bit. Tell us more about that. Okay. So um, 10 years ago, uh, in 2012, uh, my team and I did a project for, it's a local Chicago company, actually. I can't say who. Okay. Um, but the rather a large food ingredient company, and the uh, it was let, being led out of their global marketing team. And they were looking to instill some innovation into how they thought through it was an ingredient it was yeah not cpg ingredient they really wanted to stay ahead of the trends and proactively come up with ideas for their customers that would translate into new products that meant they had to you know look a little ahead of where things were so um we did a they hired us along with roper who's a consumer insight group jfk roper and it was about trying to get at what are the major, so the title of the project was, what are we going to be eating and drinking in 2022? Mm -hmm. And what are the major trends and drivers and uncertainties that are going to get us there, basically? So we did four panels where we had influencers from not food companies, but within the value chain of the food industry. So we did a Boston, a Chicago, a London, and an Amsterdam panel with about 15 participants each different and they varied from we had a farmer on every panel we had an ad agency food person nutritionist some di- uh, obesity researchers um in, Ch- in Chicago we did have a food person because they heard about it and they had to be on so the, the point was that it was a lot <laughs> We're of a food city aren't yeah, we <laughs> yeah, exactly and there was like a regulatory attorney so you know lots of different expertises and viewpoints wow, and interesting um, the the output was fascinating and there were differences between US and Europe for sure but you know some of the major outputs were things like sustainability which in 2012, you know, now it's everywhere. In 2012, mm-hmm. we knew about it, but it wasn't like, how, what does it mean if you're a company? How do you deal with it? And one of the outputs that we, that came out of all these sessions was the insight that by 2022, um, those probably, there's probably every company is going to have a scorecard probably around sustainability and what that means. And at the time, that was so outrageous. Right. We just didn't. And now, you know, the SEC has put in rules around sustainability for companies reporting on that topic. It, it, so it, it, it was really powerful to look back. Um, alternative proteins, obviously, was a big area uh, around more, getting more from what we eat, you know, yes. like how— uh, Nutrition, it, more like dense, more exactly, and the confluence of animal welfare and more natural eating, and so in just in, from an environmental standpoint. Uh, and in 2012, it was kind of early, you totally, know. Totally, Beyond was... Meat wasn't until 2015 wow. and 16, and and again, this was a 
company that could have gone out and started planting legumes and things because they know how to do agriculture. Um, but it was so, they couldn't get their head around how, you know, what does that mean from a value-added and ingredient almost even standpoint? tactical, maybe. A lot, huge, it was like just a, okay, it was we know very this, disruptive. Okay, we get there. Very disruptive, and which typically happens with big companies, right? That's why little companies get in there first. They're a little bit more agile. Um, a lot more agile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, a- aging My Way was one of the vectors. We called it Aging My Way because obviously with demographics uh, changing, you know, there's a much older population, but we're not our parents' parents' generation. And this is the first time in history where we have five demographic populations together, you know, between uh, generation Y, millennials, X, baby boomers, and the older generation. It's the first time we've ever had so many together. I tell you together. what, having still, you know, high school at home, you know, freshman and sophomore, and then having an 88-year-old mom, Yeah, it's, it's so hard to have both ends of that spectrum. You feel just pulled constantly, so yeah. I get that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and what does that mean for ingredients and and and, and the whole food is medicine thing? You know, all right. the all these things that are so obvious now that just came out of that that session. And did it come out that consumers were going to get more and more interested in the values of? Yes, that was one of them. It was value based eating. It what did we call it? It was about. It, it gets to sort of the um, you know the. I'm a market segment of one, right? Like right. I only eat the way I eat and nobody else eats like that. And it's all about your values and ethics and which, you know, everyone's on a different diet, right? Like even the term right. vegetarian doesn't mean the same thing to 10 people. You ask 10 people what if they're a vegetarian and they all eat a little bit differently. It's not True, the, the flexitarian thing. Yeah, But everything. I think the importance of, I feel like it's particularly with like my my boys that are, you know, 22 to 30-ish, that the values of whatever, not necessarily even just food, but what they buy, they care about the company they're buying from's That's values. Right. That's so right. So I think that too is is yep. a part of That's right. Corp- us being authentic suppliers and you know, yeah. ingredient companies and ethical. It, yes. And and one of the other topics or one of the other what we did is we took uncertainties. So we define uncertainties as things for which there's no obvious endpoint. Mm-hmm. In either direction, like we don't really know what's going to happen, and we put them together to create scenarios. And um, the two that we did in Chicago, the two uncertainties that we used were around the alignment of food policy. So, were companies aligned with government and policy and the regulatory bodies? Like, how, they're very rarely aligned, right? True. Like, you look at the the, the um, we call them we used to call them food stamps. Now they're called something else. I can't remember what. Yeah, but I don't know. It's not aligned necessarily with what the nutritional recommendations are. You know, well, how about school lunch programs? Exactly, yes. they're not aligned. Yeah. And then you've got, and then the other uncertainty was, is the food industry going to be? Um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like a responsible citizen? Is it going to be profit generated or is it going to also be a little more ethically generated? And and you put those together and we got these really cool scenarios with names like, you know, food industry is the hero, which is where they collaborate together for the good of the consumer. And it's not all about profit. It's not all about quantity. It's quality. And what does that look like? I mean, it kind of leads to this whole conversation of collaboration. It does. It perfectly fits that. And how wise of you guys to come up with this in 2012. 
I know. Very wise. I want to read this whole thing. Yeah. Well, we'll I'll let you read it That's because really good. I can. Now it is 2022, right. so it's, it yes, be. exactly. No, it's it's. I will give it to you to read. It's, you know, I it's always feel that about our industry that we're responsible for feeding the world. Yes, we are. It sounds get grandiose sometimes, but together we are. I mean, flavor's not going to feed anybody, but together. We feed well, the world. And it shouldn't be so hard for consumers to eat right. No. It shouldn't. Right now, you need like a master's in nutrition to know how to eat right. I mean, I'm exaggerating, right. but it's really difficult for the average consumer to understand. And I, I like I said, graduated many years ago in 92, and, and I, nutrition was part of my major. Mm-hmm. And that whole triangle just flipped. We were, you know, and I'm kind of a believer in low carbs and low sugar. Yeah. And in that day, it, that was the bottom of the triangle. Right, it Not was. necessarily sugar, but, you know, so yep. I think we can fuse the consumers, too. We do. We do. I think we've gotten a little more stable, though, on that, our we messaging. Have. Yes, we have. Well, there's mm-hmm. a lot of just information online, right? You had um, lots of different people that maybe didn't have the background that we all did in school studying this. That Food would, science, babe. I love her. Yeah, yeah I, was, I, I don't her. know if I could love say her. it or not. Yes, but, I um, think so. I, she doesn't know who I am from Adam, but I follow her, and I, yep. I'm like, thank you that there's somebody out there speaking science. Like, she demiss the food babe, right? Yes. Who doesn't always have the scientific background to oh, I don't know the food science babe. You got to know the food science babe. Yes. She's oh. a, a young woman, and she, really? uh, she's making a name for herself and oh. I think she's doing great. Uh, well, that, see, this 2012 was when all these social media voices were like Michael Pollan and all right. that. That was like at the heart of Did you that come up with something in 22 that, that, that social media and digital marketing, like that that was going to be a part of it or did that not come up on the radar? No, that was definitely part of it and that was part of the food industry as hero bit because remember that. Michael Pollan and, and his Marion Nestle, all these really smart people are can be very anti-food industry. Yes. And um, the idea was, well, are are we going to prove them right or are we going to are we going to do something that about it? That is like it's such a slippery slope. I love that topic because yeah. being on the board of the Flavor and Extract Manufacturers Association, mm-hmm. it's something we talk about often. It's a I don't know, 120-year-old association, maybe I I'm talked exaggerating. At one of their group at one of their meetings once. Funnest trade industry meeting it, ever. It, it is, and back to competition, <laughs> it is where you can sit at a table with your competitors there you go. for the industry. Right. That's what excites me about yeah. FEMA. There's mm-hmm. been <clears throat> days where I'm like, it's, it's hard. <laughs> but I think that that mission keeps me going on it, and it's an honor to be a part of it. But I think, um, yeah, it's... It's where the collaboration and the protection of what we are all doing is just, yep. it's its so needed. And working with the FDA and, you yes. know, it's the regulatory side of it. It's yes. so important. So I do think in the past 10 years, there has been more of a coordinated effort or at least the food industry. You know, a lot of things changed too, right? Like the big food companies became pressured from smaller food companies with innovative new products. They knew they couldn't sit still and do nothing any longer. Mm-hmm. Less... Um, Less late, like just hard to get people to actually work. You know, the baking industry is like dying. There's like no bakers anymore. It's, right. it's really hard to just keep going, and they need to, they need to collaborate just to keep some of their industries as spot on and innovative and and just mm. top of mind. You know, rather than thinking in their own little shell. Right. So, the one industry that 
I continue to be somewhat disappointed by though is fast food. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, it's, it, there's just been the reluctance of the fast food industry to really go beyond. And there's some great new fast food companies, right? Right. Great. Um, but the old guard has not necessarily felt the need to sell beyond what can sell. Yeah, and um, that yeah. there's a low common denominator there. Right. So, but oh well. But I love this food hero concept. I think that's just yeah. brilliant. And I, I mean, I want to be a part of an industry that's the food hero. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, Chicagoland Food and Beverage Network is another really cool association and they have uh, the bigger table. Have you ever heard of the no. bigger table? I know Lauren, you know about the bigger table. So th- this always just amazed me that their, their first project during the pandemic was um, coming up with a hot chocolate that had protein and low oh. sugar for school lunch programs. I believe it was started for that and back to consortium. So we're a member. I was on the board of that for a while. I think it's Laura Enriquez. I think Laura might be on the board for no. us now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had Flavor Company, we had Imbibe, um, mm-hmm. Fona, mm-hmm. all different companies. Somebody was doing the line. Somebody had the manufacturing line. So just the whole supply chain of coming up with a hot chocolate worked together in labs together. Six months later, came up with the product, Very packaging. Cool. Very cool. And it was all donated. That's Everybody great. donated their line time, their flavors, their service. That's it gives me chills. Like that's food here. Who sponsored that? Who did it that? It was uh, Bigger Table, which uh-huh. is the 501c3 under Chicagoland Food and Beverage Network. That's great. And they're now they're great coming example. up with mac and cheese, and mm-hmm. I, so they kept it going. And that's different, isn't that cool? Wonderful food pantries mm-hmm. goes to food pantries to too. Food pantries. Maybe not this. Yeah. Okay. That's um, great. isn't that? Cool? I mean, but that's, that's just great. a perfect model. Let's do more of that. Absolutely. Agree. Agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love this concept of food, the food heroes and really wanting to be a part of that. So what do you think, both of you think that the opportunity is for leaders in the food industry to really take that and make change and make a difference and an impact? I would love for there, for there to be less arguing about what it means to be a food hero and more understanding of what it would be to all work together around this concept. You know, and just because I personally don't eat meat, you know, doesn't mean that on social media there has to be the beef industry or of any country talking about, you know, how bad it is to how good meat is and how bad plant-based protein is. Like, I, I, I think that there's a happy middle here. It can be and. Yes, it, it can, can be, be and. and. It is not or. And um, it's really destructive because these many, uh, there's big voices out there with big platforms and it becomes very destructive to the consumer. I and think. then it becomes more about profit. It does. Than leaving the legacy we want to leave in the food industry of being food heroes. Exactly. And what's best for the individual. Exactly. And so there's got to be, um, you know, some some way to address uh, that issue. And it is global. It's a global issue because, you know, these these are these are areas. It's the whole world is just becoming bigger and bigger, more developed. And, you know, food processing is increasing in other areas like Africa. And all these issues are going to just get even more magnified in the lesser economically developed areas. It's just gonna it's it's gonna be become a bigger thing, not a smaller thing. Right. 
What do you think, Lauren? <laughs> yeah, so it's thinking, looking outside of our scope. Like, you know, we're flavor, but it's the bigger picture. And how do we feed the masses? And I, I think you hit it at the end. So we can we can do both these things. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. In order to feed the masses, we're going to have to do a lot of things. Um, and it's it's the, you know, regenerative, you know, think of even mm-hmm. like vertical farming, things yes. like that. Like how, if we're, if we're having less arable land to grow crops, how do we then grow food sustainable to keep feeding the masses? Because um, we're growing faster, like to yes. your point, than yes. the food supply yes. is potentially. So. And by the way, the vertical farming came up in the 2012 study. <laughs> Excuse me. Wow. Believe it or not, wow. the Europeans That's came, very ahead of— The Europeans came up with it. They were like, mm-hmm. vertical farming is like a big deal. And we were like, really? So, yes. That so, is cool stuff. Is yeah. that where it like moves, kind of like, does it literally vertically move? Nope. No. I guess it could, but not typically. It's okay. literally— I think they're still trying to figure out how to scale it. But, you know, now all our lettuce in New England, the best lettuce is grown inside. It's not vertical, mm-hmm. but it's still inside. So it's getting mm-hmm. it's some of the same. Um, so you're able to concept. grow crops in different hemispheres yep. and climates that you typically wouldn't grow and harvest. Ah, right. Mm-hmm. Not as impacted by climate change and so forth. So yeah. um, I also think, you know, and I, I mentioned being at Ingredient, I do see a, a lot of opportunity to, to do this because of the impact and the scale and the just the reach that they have as a global company. Um, personally, I also fill in the holes and this started while I was still consulting, but I do nonprofit work uh, in some selective areas. And I think I mentioned, well, maybe I didn't, but I don't eat meat, but I eat fish. So I'm on a nonprofit uh, called the North American Marine Alliance, and their uh, whole it, it's it's also sort of a sister organization to the National Family Farm Coalition. So the whole idea is that the fishing industry, you know, has become just like the beef industry, very industrialized. Mm-hmm. And I live on the coast in Boston, so this is a big deal. And people for whom fish fishing is a way of life, fish workers have been severely compromised in the, over the past 40 years due to policy many times with fish quotas and the way of life of a whole generation of people has completely changed for farmers as well as fishing folks. And so, and then there's a whole social, social justice component around that too. So working with the nonprofit has just been a really nice way to get close to an issue that's particularly maybe more niche to some, but near and dear to my heart that really mm-hmm. is very impactful for a large group of people. And it's been a nice, very rewarding experience. You probably learn a lot from that too. Learn a lot, a lot for sure. <laughs> and I think using social media for good for this becoming the food heroes is Yes. Using that platform for power. It's a great name. Let's use that name. We are. I love it. I think it's going to be the (laughs) title of this podcast. (laughs) Maybe. Okay, you guys. So, the last question Mm -hmm. What is the legacy you would like to leave behind? So, you know, I have to be honest, Lorette. When I first, you know, you've been doing this podcast for a while now, and you really made me think about what does it mean to leave a legacy? Um, Thank you, Renee. Yeah, you really, I, because, 
just the society we live in, you think of, you know, big buildings and universities with people's names on it. And that's the legacy that they've left behind. And it was wealthy people, mostly men. It just wasn't even, and and I think women always, and I've, I think you said this in one of your previous podcasts, you know, women always think of it as their children is what they leave behind as, as their legacy. And that's true, but there's so much more. It doesn't have to be tied to that. Each one of us has so much power to do something. I want to say that I'm still figuring it out. It's still a journey for me, but you have sparked the awareness in me that this is a really important topic, if only just to talk to others about it as well and to see how powerful, how much power there is in one person really understanding that they have the ability to, you know, to, to, to do good for, for, for everyone else, you know, as their legacy, and, right. and what is that? It's let's and not just say I think it's we're not even children. aware of the lives that we touch. We're not. We had some conversations yesterday. I believe it was yesterday, but they're all flowing together. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I was I was telling you about a supplier diversity friend of mine, and and just him opening a door to diverse suppliers and the impact he made. Not only the lives of the owner of that company, but think of all the lives he or she diverse is 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 touching and supporting and it's such a ripple. I love the ripple effect. It's a ripple. And when you actively think about the fact that you're going to leave a legacy, whether you try to or not, I guess. True. Why not make it be a good one? What you really want. (laughs) Exactly. Intentional. Let's make it happen in intentional action. That's exactly right. Beautiful. So. What do you got, lady? I know I've asked you this well, before. I think it's still about the same. Honestly, yeah. though, like to your point, like I, I catch myself reflecting on it occasionally. Like, okay, I've kind of said this is going to be my legacy, but maybe there's more to it than mm-hmm. just that, right? And as I grow in my career mm-hmm. and my experiences, it may change. But really, my legacy at this time is as a young mother, young parent, a young professional you know, encouraging other young professionals to keep pursuing their dreams, regardless of life obstacles, you know, when you become a parent and you, I heard you, earlier you said you zigged and you zagged kind of early on in your career and, and it's okay to do those things and it's okay really? to, um, to still want to, you know, find your career and find who you are. Cause that's a big part of who you are as well as being a parent. So you can, you can do both those things. And I don't think it has to be one and done. You know, I think you're right. Yep. Like at certain points of your life, it's going to be a different legacy that you're thinking about mm-hmm. and it can evolve. Yeah, I, I love that. To- I love that. It d- yeah. t- differs by stage. And I, I said it in the beginning, as far as life is long and as women, maybe less so now, but we were, you know, really, we thought we had to do everything early on and you right. don't, women don't hit their stride, just so you know, yes. until their fifties. I oh, really yes, don't. I agree. I agree. We <laughs> got a lot of cheering going on right there. That is very so, true. It's a process and you learn through it and find your confidence and yes. the experience and your freedom. helps it's and your really, voice. And it's, yeah. it's such a it's such a journey. Thank you both so much for joining me today. It was a great conversation. I think really hugely insightful and it inspired me. I'm I'm going to be a food hero now. So no. yay, here we go. So glad. Thanks for having me. It was super fun. Good. Yay. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Owning Your Legacy. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with others and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
To learn more about me and how I am owning my legacy, you can find me on Instagram at Lorette Rondonet and online at LoretteRondonet.com. Until next time. <laughs>